Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Hello. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Sally Fox. Sally is an organic, biodynamic farmer located in the Capay Valley of Northern California. Sally's farm is comprised of climate-beneficial wool for merino sheep, as well as naturally and organically bred colored cotton. Sally Fox is one of the few organic cotton farmers in America and has made a huge contribution to the genetics of cultivating and bringing naturally colored cotton to the commercial market. In our conversation, we talk about how she got started as a farmer and some of the trials and tribulations she's faced to keep her farm operation going. Sally is a huge inspiration of mine, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you all so that you can see exactly why. We covered a lot in this conversation, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, Sally, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, LaShawn, for having me. Can you start out by telling us about your background and sharing how you found your way into the world of textile farming? Well, um, my name is Sally Fox, and I began loving textiles as a very small child. It was something innate in me. Um, We used to shop at, uh, used to do uh, most of our clothing shopping at the Goodwill and those kinds of places, and it was my joy to go up and down the rows of all the clothes and uh, my game was to guess fiber contents well before they were all written inside this was back before it was the law that you had to say what things were in the textiles (laughs) and uh, I was always really interested in textiles and I learned to spin um, all sorts of fibers when I was I started learning to spin at 11 um, one of my older sisters took me to a Renaissance fair and somebody te- had hand spindles and I used my babysitting money to buy one and, and set me off on this hand spinning journey. This was in the late sixties and early seventies before the whole thing really had gotten caught on. Um, but I had an influential teacher. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area and my high school was near Stanford University, and there was this incredible woman who was from Kenya. She was the second woman from Kenya to get a PhD. Her name was Elizabeth Wangari, and she was getting a PhD in ecology at Stanford, um, but she had gotten her master's and undergraduate degrees in entomology, and that was her true love, entomology. And I kind of became her protege and became thoroughly enchanted with the study of insects and very devoted to the concept of reducing pesticide use by understanding pests and methods of controlling them that were more sophisticated than just the um, toxins commonly used at the time. And she encouraged me to go to college. In fact, she organized an internship at a company that was doing insect hormone research. I was their only intern, thanks to her. Um, And I did study entomology. I I 
worked my way through college and one of my um, jobs that I had to pay for college was I taught hand spinning to a number of people in the area where I was going to school, which was San Luis Obispo. I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo for my undergraduate degree. And while there, while teaching hand spinning, one of my students was an older woman whose grown daughter had become, um, uh, had, had been rendered incapacitated by poisons in her brain and the poisons had come from she had been a textile a high school textile teacher and she had had the kids and herself do lots of dyeing and she hadn't used gloves and the dye the metals in the dyes had migrated to her brain and killed it and she was um, wow. pretty much a vegetable and was in the nursing home and her mother had told me all about this um, thanks to Dr. Wangari, I had become very devoted and knowledgeable and studied pesticides all the time. And back then there was no Google. You went to a library to find things out. So I went to find out, well, who makes dyes? And it turns out the fairy companies that make pesticides started out making dyes. And dyes are highly toxic themselves, in fact. And... Um, I studied quite a bit about dyes thanks to this terrible story and I decided that in my own spinning and my own weaving and knitting I would have nothing to do with any chemical dyes. Back then there, the, the level of knowledge of natural dyes was, was pretty um, simple and not developed as it is today and I decided to just stick with natural colors of natural fibers and I I sought them out. It's not so hard to find natural colors of wool because a lot of people grow black and brown sheep. Um, but I sought out all kinds of colors. In fact, they I used to they used to let me go in the in the San Francisco Zoo. They let me go and pick up the camel hair and the muskox hair and all these different animals' hair. I remember, they would be feeding the muskox or feeding the camels, and they'd say, "Okay." run and I'd run in and grab all the hair that they had shed in a bag and get out <laughs> <laughs> and so I used to spin these were my colors because I wouldn't use dyes right I was so freaked out about the dyes from my student's daughter and um so later I graduated from I got my bachelor's and I let I went into the Peace Corps and worked in West Africa and I came back and uh, I worked in West Africa with rice and groundnuts, which are peanuts. We call them peanuts here, but they call them groundnuts everywhere else in the world. And I came back and got a master's and hoped to go back and work in pest management in Africa. But I never, ever got any of the, it was a depression at that point in agricultural jobs worldwide, and I never was hired, but I was hired by a innovative plant breeder to help him breed um, nematode-resistant cottons. And while working for him as a pollinator and also um, setting up a big tank with lots of nematodes so that we could evaluate each of his breeding lines of how, how resistant they were to nematodes. By the way, nematodes are small, microscopic soil animals that attack, that some of which attack the roots of crop plants. 
So breeding for resistance to this to these nematodes is a pretty big deal. Um, anyway, I was working for him when I found a bag of brown cotton and I had never uh, here finally cotton in color, right? Because I had wool and camel, muskox, you know, the animal fibers, there are a lot of colors, but among the plant fibers, all I knew about was white and pretty boring and you're kind of stuck dying it. So, but here was this beautiful color of brown um, in this bag. And so I asked him, but the fiber of this cotton in his, in this bag, in the drawer of his greenhouse was very rough and short. And I could spin it, but not very easily. And, um, and I was a good spinner. So I asked him, well, why don't we improve the fiber of this cotton? And he, he said, well, there's no market for colored cotton. And I said, well, why don't we make a market for colored cotton? And he was in his seventies and I was in my twenties and he started laughing and he said, well, why don't you make a market for colored cotton and you can have this part of the greenhouse, go for it. You know, here, take the seeds and go for it. And I said, well, okay, but first of all, we have to improve the fiber because this is really hard to spin. And he said, well, so we talked about, well, what would we cross? What would I cross it with? And sort of like a whole breeding plan. And, and I began uh, my work of how to make the fiber easier to spin by using um, classical plant breeding. And I ended up thinking cotton breeding was like the most boring thing imaginable because everything's sort of done. It takes like a decade to make any progress. And I ended up going, my mom was sick and I ended up getting a job in entomology closer so I could go help my mom. And, but I took all my plants in pots. So, you know, I had my plants in pots and I, and I, um, you know, went, I gave my notice and he found, you know, he, he, it was great. I said goodbye and I went on and, but kept these plants in pots and kept doing the crosses and kept growing the seeds up. And I had a series of, of, um, jobs in my field, but there, it was still the depression in agriculture was still strong. And it was a long time before I got a really, like a real job. It was all these minimum wage not, you know, where you didn't have any health benefits or anything kind of jobs, but at least they were in my field, which was a good thing. But so years of this went on and I just kept moving. I moved from San Mateo back to Bakersfield area to work at their county department of agriculture and didn't do a couple, I did a couple of internships there, but I kept working on these cottons, breeding them, growing them up in pots. Eventually I got this, finally got a good job in San Diego. Um, um, but by that time I had so many plants that I was uh, beginning to rent land. Um, I started out with a quarter acre and then an acre. This is outside of Bakersfield. And I rented the land and farmed it with all these plants that I, that were the progenies of these crosses that I was making with this goal of having um, an easier to spin naturally colored cotton. Mm. Wow, that's so interesting. I have so many questions. Um, how ex what was the process that it takes to actually breed cotton? Like, what are you doing when you're starting in pots? 
how are you cross pollinating? So cotton has a great big, huge flower. It looks a lot like a hibiscus. And there's the, the stigma, which is the female, female part is way up out um, above the pollen bearing um, portion of the flower. And the pollen um, bearing portion of the flower are these very, um, they're either cream colored little pollen um, granules or they're um, bright yellow, depending on the species. There's two species of cotton that are native to the Americas. So um, just a little background, in the world, cotton was domesticated in two places. Cot there, were, there are diploid cottons, that means it has two sets of chromosomes, like us, like most animals, um, and many plants are diploids. And this means they get one set of chromosome from their mother, one from their father. The diploid cottons were domesticated originally in South Africa and were domesticated, people believe they were domesticated primarily for animal feed because in Eurasia, Africa, that whole part of the world, the whole, that whole area, people were very into domesticating animals. If you think about it, they're cattle and sheep and goats and horses and all these animals that people domesticated and they, a lot of the food, a lot of the plants that were domesticated were surrounding the production of food for the animals. And these cottons are safe for all animals to eat. They don't produce a poison that the, the New World cottons, they call the New World cottons um, because they're from North or South America and they consider, the Europeans considered North and South America this New World. So that's the, in the botanical language you hear about New World and Old World. And they're referring to the Americas when they're talking about New World. At about 3500 BC in South Africa and also in the Americas, cottons that produced fibers that were spinnable were domesticated. The old world cottons from South Africa, Southern Africa, were diploids and didn't produce a poison called gossypol. But the new world cottons, which are the ones I work with, which are Gossypium hirsutum and Gossypium barbadense, they are tetraploids. That means they have four sets of chromosomes. And those cottons produce a poison called gossypol in the seed. And this poison renders the seed um, toxic to be eaten, except if the animal is a ruminant, which they didn't, they, so in the Americas, the people who domesticated and developed the cottons that we use, that are mostly used for fiber today, all over the world, those, their goal appears to have been primarily for the fiber and not for animal feed. And they bred and developed cottons in colors, many colors. And one of the stories is, is that when Columbus showed up on, at, on, this, on the island of Hispaniola, they had been growing one of the species of cotton, Gossypium hirsutum, for thousands of years on that island. But just three years before Columbus showed up, somebody brought 
the first of Gossypium barbadense, the other species native to the Americas, and they were growing that cotton for the first time. And then this guy shows up and they gave him cotton bowls of both species, which he brought back with him on the first journey. And within a hundred years through the land route of the Silk Road, those seeds got back to India and China where cotton had been growing for fiber for about, let me think, about 2,000 years because from once it was domesticated in South Africa, it was brought up through Egypt and then into India and China and it had been growing extensively and it was a very prized product of India and China. But within a hundred years of Columbus bringing these quote new world cottons back, people in India and China had switched to these Gossypium barbadense and Gossypium hirsutum because the fiber was easier to spin. And they mm. didn't only bring the white ones, they brought colored ones too. And this fascinates me a lot. I think a lot about how these seeds went all these places and how, how it's sort of so something uh, that just, I just wonder, you know, I think a lot about it because I have this relationship with the plant over 36, 37 years now. I keep thinking about it. I think about every time I touch a seed, how many other people planted and grew the cotton to get to where I got to grow it and be part of its life. Wow. So cotton has, has really had a very long history that's linked to various cultures and various types of terrain and environment. What would you say is your iteration um, and how you've sort of changed or created your own genetics in the cotton that you've bred? Well, some the first big exciting thing for me was that I was breeding brown. I came, I started with this brown cotton. And the brown cotton that I started with was um, given to the breeder I worked for by the USDA breeder in the area. His name was Gus Heyer, the USDA guy. And he was totally, dream, he was dreaming. I met his son years later. I never met this Gus Heyer. But I did meet his son, and his son said that he had dreamed that someday there would be a market using this cotton because it grew in color. And he was trying to get breeders, real, um, you know, the breeders who were in business breeding plants, to take this on and improve it to make it machine spinnable, because he felt it had a big place in the in a, in a toolbox of having a more sustainable. Um, ecologically sound textile world but of course he couldn't get anybody to be interested because you'd have to develop a market and breeders are not people that develop markets marketers are people that develop markets breeders plant breeders normally breed plants for some reason like that it will be able to sell the seeds and who's going to buy seeds for something that no one will buy so the whole thing never happened until I came along and then and I was just too naive to know. I just was idealistic. And I just wanted to make it easier to spin. And then I started learning about its history. And 
I began with these brown cottons cross-pollinating one brown with another brown and brown with Pima and brown with Sea Island cotton and all these crosses I was making and I was trying to tell you about the flower and how it looks and how it has the stigma way at top and the pollen way below and cotton flower only is um, it's only um, fertile for one day unlike something like a hibiscus that opens up and you see it many days the cotton flower opens up it's fertile and the next day that by the afternoon it closes up and either the seeds the seed has set or it hasn't and then if the seed is set the cotton bowl forms and about 60 days later you have a cotton bowl that 60 plus days later the cotton bowl opens up with um, fiber surrounding the seed so if you're going to do classical plant breeding what you do is you if you want to cross say a, let's say you wanted to use the brown as the mother and you wanted to use sea island which is the longest white cotton known or ever bred uh, as the father to see if you could get some longer length <laughs> in the child then you would use the then you would take the pollen away from the from the flower of the mother leaving only the stigma and then you would bring the pollen from the sea island flower the day that the flower was fertile put it on the stigma and then cover the flower up and tag it and then you would take the seeds that would that develop from that cross pollination and plant them the next year those are called the f1s and then when you plant those that first year those plants grow up they produce seeds you collect the seeds from those those are called now the f2s and you plant them and it's in the f2 generation that you begin to have the segregation of qualities coming out and each plant will be different from the other in the f2 and that's when you can start making selections and it usually takes um, it can go as fast as generations or years before you have what's called an open pollinated variety so you you make your first crosses and then you grow year after year after year making selections selecting individual plants whose fiber and structure of the plant are what you want or closer to what you want and then you save those seeds and you start growing them up as a group and then you can use those in in also in future cross pollinations so that's the kind of work I started upon and was doing for a long time and in the very beginning though I was all I had was brown and in the F2s of, of crosses between two different browns from this bag of seeds that came from Gus Heyer that he had gotten from the Cajun that they had been collected from the Cajuns in the 1930s in Louisiana and what I found in one plant in the about 2000 f2 plants growing around there was one green plant a green and I never even heard of green cotton I knew nothing about it except there it was there was this plant it was a scraggly scraggly like just one little stem coming out of the ground under a huge magnificent like tan colored plant the big huge tan plant I was looking at it and admiring it and going oh wow look at this and had really nice fiber and everything and then 
way under it with this little stick. And I look at it, and this little stick has two cotton balls, and I pull them out, and it's green cotton. And I just remember wow. just like laying on the ground, just crying. It was like so amazing. How could green, where did green come from? Well, it had to have been recessive in these browns. And therefore, it existed once. And people probably grew it a long time ago. And there's a lot of talk about green linters around the original sea eyelid cotton. And there's a lot of mystery about green cotton. Um, but it was never, I was not aware of green cotton growing anywhere in the world, only brown. There's only talk of browns. And there was a, a very famous cotton that was grown in China that was called Nankeen gold. It was considered a sort of yellow color. And it originated from the Americas, but was being grown in China in a very large scale way, such a large scale way that the Chinese were producing a textile that was the number one textile import into the colonies before the United States became the United States. It was called, it was a, it was a fabric. I learned about it from all these people that do these um, reenactments and they were looking for they were first when I first started selling my cotton they were looking for fabric to use in their reenactments because it was the closest thing they could find to this Nanking fabric that would that came from China that all those all the really really richest landowners would buy isn't this funny they would buy this cotton that was imported from China that was originally from the America the plant was from the Americas there's also uh, a, a further back in the colored, the colorful cotton story is that the before the Cajuns had this cotton, it was the, it were it was grown by the enslaved people. The, they were growing it. They were not allowed to grow white cotton in their gardens. They were only allowed to grow colored cotton, and this cotton is what they grew. And so, when they were, when 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 after emancipation, it was the Cajuns that took it over. But for hundreds of years, it was being grown by Africans. And it's my theory that. Um, I have this idea, and it's, I don't know how, I hope someday I'll be able to find out if it's true, but I have this idea that the African plant breeders that they kidnapped for rice breeding, which was a big deal, they were always dealing the rice technology people from where I was, from the Gambia, and the further, the farther, the the West African countries that had advanced rice cultivation, the breeders and the engineers were stolen uh, uh, at a much higher price. They were sought after and taken and sold for a much higher price as slaves because they brought the technology with them. And I think, I think that they not only had great knowledge of rice, but they also knew a lot about cotton. And I think that um, I think there's this whole untold story of what they were doing with breeding cotton. And I believe the green came from the, their knowledge. And it popped out for me, and I saved those seeds, and I've been growing and breeding the green 
There's another color that popped out from browns. Well, actually, it popped out of almost a green, and it's kind of a salmon color. And then there's another color, which is a red, very, very sort of brick sienna color. And those all seem to be genetically distinct from each other. And if I would describe my um, participation in this plant's evolution, it would be that I have been keen towards um, preserving its vigor and recognizing its importance for what it is instead of trying to just make white, uh, take, um, take the color and put it onto the characteristics of a commercially viable um, modern white cotton breeding line. Um, I felt and still feel that a great deal of its importance is its vigorous growing properties. The plant itself has properties that should not be discarded. And what I've tried to do is improve the fiber of these plants to make it easier to spin and the structure of the cotton bowl itself to make it easier to pick by machine because we don't in this, at least in our mechanized agriculture, we don't, we don't hand pick cotton anymore. And so it's very important that it be pickable by a machine. And so those are the things that I've worked on with the plant breeding aspect is um, longer, stronger fiber with um, more distinct, uh, greater distinction of the different colors that were hidden by just looking at brown. Brown is actually a mix of colors and sort of pulling those colors out, improving the fiber, but maintaining the vigorous, healthy plant, um, pre-modern type of plant that was grown all these hundreds and hundreds of years in the gardens of so many people that we don't know who we don't have a written history of them, but they tended these plants with great love and great, great, when they had hardly any time or any energy, they still cared for these plants. So what does it say about how important these plants are? That they were so treasured. And that's what I like to think about when I'm with these plants, is that they were treasured by people who, people who I didn't know, people who I don't know what their life was like, but they treasured these plants. And I feel very honored to have had over 30 years of being with them. And that's my, that's how I feel about these plants mm-hmm. it sounds very sacred it is mm-hmm. for me it is so you've kind of mentioned a lot of things about the cultural context of cotton given today's very commercialized cotton industry especially in america i know that you've kind of faced some setbacks in bringing the um, colored cotton to the market. Can you kind of talk about some of the things that you face as far as bringing it into production and sort of dealing with, you know, commercial white cotton growers and um, textile mills and things of that nature? Yeah. So 
When I first started out, I was in Bakersfield, which is a part of a very special cotton growing area called the San Joaquin Valley. And it turned out that this area had set up a cotton marketing organization in the early 1900s where they they were in a sort of a remote area by cotton standards because the whole cotton industry had been in southeastern United States and in the west here in California. It was very far away. And they decided that everybody was going to grow one kind of cotton and it was called Akela cotton. And you were not allowed to grow anything but that cotton. And if you were going to be a breeder, you had to be approved by their organization. And the organization was very powerful and backed up by the state. The state, um, the CDFA would come, if you grew cotton that wasn't approved by them, they would come and plow your field up. I, I had these fields uh, that I had rented in around Bakersfield that's in this district and I had had to get permission to do my breeding work and I did. I was getting permission every year. I registered as a plant breeder and, and every year they inspected everything and everything was fine. And I was beginning to increase um, I finally had enough of, of one cotton and um, to test it. And turns out it was, I had developed a brown cotton that was machine spinnable. I named, I, it was my first variety that I open pollinated variety and I named it coyote. And I, uh, and it kind of made, it was exciting. I had a, the first green that I produced, I got it so we could spin it too. And I got interest in a mill from Japan that wanted to buy the cotton if I could produce it. And as a breeder, you were allowed a certain amount, certain number of acres. And I was following the rules. I was a, I was a young scientist. I was employed during this time in San Diego. I was driving back and forth between San, by then I had a real job. And I had, I was driving back and forth between San Diego and the fields that I rented. And eventually I had quit my job at San Diego and just, um, and got another job as a scientist in, uh, at a, facility in Wasco, California, growing a bacteria that's used in biocontrol. So I always funded all this research by my own scientific um, job. My, my salary from my job, I would live as frugally as I could and put everything I could into renting land and, and doing this work and um, paying for all this because none of this is cheap. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I... <laughs> To put it mildly, I mean, to grow up acres of plants, to find one decent plant out of it is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. And But I did that. I believed that this cotton could, I just was so, I so believed this cotton could make a difference because it could, it was easy, it was far more easy to grow organically because it was vigorous on its own. It was resistant to pests. It was resistant to diseases and nematodes. It was resistant to everything. And you didn't have to defoliate it because the reason they use chemical defoliants is the white cotton gets stained by the leaves with the machine picking. Well, what's, this isn't going to stain. So it's, it already has color, so you don't have to worry it's going to stain, so you don't have to use defoliants. So you, didn't, you could easily switch this cotton to organic, and you didn't have to use dyes, which, as, as I told you in the first place, was my, you know, was this big thing that's the equivalent of pesticides in my book. 
So I believed in it so strongly and I worked on it because I thought I was developing a way to be my part, my part of the saving the world thing, which was a big deal back in the 80s. A lot of people were trying to save the world then. It sort of switched into everybody for themselves later. But <laughs> back then, there was a whole bunch of us, and that's what we were trying to do. <laughs> and this was my way, <laughs> right? And so I worked on it and worked on it. And I finally got an order from this mill in Japan to grow enough cotton for their not everything that I could grow and I and I had begun to increase it and I was using it everything was by the book and I used a gin that they had approved and I followed every rule and regulation and then one night I get this call from this drunk guy really rude drunk guy and he and he says to me oh I have this colored cotton and I don't know who who should I sell it to? And I go, what? Where did you get colored cotton? And he said, oh, I went to the gin and stole a truckload of your seeds. What? What? <laughs> what are you doing? You went to the What? I said, you stole a truckload of my seeds. And yeah, and I planted it. And now I have three acres. And I want to know who to sell it to. He's all drunk and rude. And I'm, I'm this, okay, I'm a young woman then, right? And this is an older guy, and he's rude. And I said, well, you're not supposed to steal my seeds. That's called, that's, that's stealing. And he says, and I said, and are you even registered with the state, you know, and all this? And he goes, yeah, well, then, yeah, I guess it's, I guess it's stealing, but what are you going to do about it? And then he says, you know, you don't like it, sue me. Okay, so. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, I and I said, oh, and by the way, this is a variety, and I registered it, and, and I have the rights to it. You can't just take my seeds and grow them. You have to have my permission to grow them. And and that's when he said, well, then sue me. Okay, so um, fast forward a couple years, he's still growing it, and I eventually get the money to pay a lawyer and go to sue him. In the meantime, he's gone off and gone around to my customers with this cotton, this mine that he's growing, and he is the one that comes up with color grown. This is why I hate the word color grown, because this guy, this awful guy, is the one that came up with the word color grown. I had my own trademark, Fox Fiber Color Organic. My best friend came up with the artwork, but it was her... Her idea called Fox Fiber. I thought it was sort of, I didn't want it because it was my last name, but she thought it was such a neat thing. It was like a wild animal. Oh, wow. And this, when you look at the cotton, it does look like an animal. It does look more like an animal than just mm -hmm. a plant. And she did the color. She, if you've ever seen my logo, it sees two foxes, but it's a paper cut and the negative space between the two cotton two foxes kissing as a mm -hmm. cotton bowl. And so it's a really sweet logo and it was my friend's artwork. And then I came up with the word color organic and I thought it was so clever, color organic, one word. And those were my trademarks. And this guy just called it color grown, which if you were going to use my trademark, you had to be using my cotton. It was my way of saying, hey, if you want to use this cotton, I used to let people use the mark for free as long as they agreed to show. It was kind of like a 
community thing. People would send me samples of their products, of their designs that they made with the cotton, and anybody interested could come to my office and they could see what other people had designed and it would give them ideas because it's kind of a limited color mm. palette. And you have to remember most people thought you can't spin colored cotton. And first they said you can't spin colored cotton. Then they said you can't knit colored cotton. Then they say then they said you can't weave colored cotton. Then they said you can't wash colored cotton. So I would have to do all these tests and prove no, you can grow it, you can spin it, you can weave it, you can knit it, you can wash it, you can all these things because I tested it. I spent so much money on testing. By this time, I finally had enough money to quit my job because I was getting orders from this mill in Japan. And I quit my job as a, as a, as a um, microbiologist and quality control person at the biological control place. And I was just doing the cotton and I was using the funds from the sale of the cotton to continue to show everybody that this cotton was viable and you could use it. And despite what all the regular cotton growers said. So the cotton, the big time cotton producers were getting worried about colored cotton because if it got mixed in with their white cotton, they would get lower classification of it. And if someone wasn't following the rules, carefully it could happen that there would be mix up and here were this here was this guy the drunk guy that called me at night that stole my seeds he wouldn't follow any mm. rules he was going around growing it and he was going to sue and he was going to take it to the supreme court and nobody had any right to tell anybody where to what to do and he was like this original libertarian guy and they decided to outlaw colored cotton period so here I was. I followed all the rules. I I never did anything that wasn't supposed to happen. But here's this guy, Mr. Color Grown, why I hate the word so much. He not only steals my seeds, makes me sue him, which cost me all this money. And in the end, I lost. And guess how come I lost? I lost the lawsuit because he grew, he stole both my brown and my green, and he mixed them up in the field. So when you when he grew, he said he thought all cotton was colored. Who cares what color? So he mixed them all up. So when they grew my cotton, mine, I had my pure variety brown called Coyote. Mm -hmm. And I had a new variety of green called Palo Verde. And my brown, they were all brown and they all looked alike. And my green was all green, and it all looked alike. And what he did was he mixed the brown and the green up in the field, in the seeds. So when they tested his cotton, it was a mix of my brown and green. And the question is, was it the same or not? No, it wasn't the same. Mine was pure, and his was a mix. So I didn't even win the lawsuit. Can you imagine? And I wasted all this money on the lawyer and the, all this time. And in the meantime, I had to move from California to Arizona to get away because I had orders and I wanted to grow it. And then here I was. I was outlawed thanks to this joker. And then I'm in Arizona for a few years. The growers got all up in arms that not only was it colored, but it was organic and they hated organic. And they want. They thought organic farming was like, a, like they thought organic farms were in, were nuisances. That they were like creating pests. 
that the rest of the population, the rest of the farmers were going to have to deal with, like that they were sort of like massive pest insectaries and they wanted to outlaw, they were, they had gotten together and they, they got the legislature, they, they got the legislators to introduce, to be ready to introduce and pass legislation to outlaw all organic farming in the state of Arizona. This was 1994. This was before organic was very well established. And the director of agriculture didn't really want to see all organic farming outlawed in the state of Arizona. And he knew what the real thing was, is they were just trying to get rid of my cotton. Um, and so he suggested we have some meetings and we come up with rules and regulations that maybe everyone could live with and that they could change the legislation and get rid of this outlawing all organic farming in Arizona. And so we sat down and I agreed to an awful lot of very onerous regulations because I didn't want to see organic farming outlawed in Arizona. And um, one of the regulations was that, that uh, anybody who had, that, that, my, that the naturally colored cottons had to be half a mile, no, three miles from anybody's seed fields which is pretty rough actually because Arizona is a big seed producing cotton seed producing state um, but the farm that I had a partial lease interest in was 28 miles from the nearest town it was really remote it that's where I had my breeding nursery uh, I, I agreed to these regulations and as soon as they were passed as soon as the legislature passed them a big, a big seed company put their seed field 2.9 miles away from my nursery, which meant I couldn't do my breeding there. And I had to leave there too. I moved and uh, had to, the last year I could grow my cotton there was in 1996. And, and that's why I moved to Northern California where there's no cotton grown commercially, no rules, nothing. And this is where I've been since 1998, I moved farms in 1998 and I've been doing my breeding here, but it's rough because it's really at the northern edge of where you can grow cotton and there is no industry and therefore no infrastructure, no gins, no seed delinting. Um, all the production, whenever I've had an order for the cotton, which has come from a mill in Japan, still one mill in Japan uses my cotton. <laughs> Um, they, I've been growing it in a, in one region in New Mexico where there is a gin that will gin it and farmers that will grow it and it's not illegal, but that's what happened with me and my cotton and the work I was doing is I had, I had, I felt very persecuted to be honest with you. It felt, I felt persecuted. I felt very much hated. There was a lot of there was a lot of, in my opinion, there was a lot of undisguised racism about this. There was, I feel like I got to experience a very small taste of racism because, uh, because this cotton came originally from African people's tending of it. It's somehow there somehow the cotton community, the people who grew it knew this. I was in a store 
walking in the grocery store once and this man came up and spit all over me and told me we hate colored cotton. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm getting a taste. This is a tiny taste of what other people go through every day of their life. And I get, because of this cotton, I get to experience a tiny bit of it. And it made me more protective of the cotton. Every time something like this happened, which happened a lot, I took it as my chance to experience what I would never have known about had I not had this relationship with the plant and been its sort of ambassador. I, I consider myself mainly not really as much a breeder or a developer, but as an ambassador of the plant and I feel that it's time has come it's time is really long overdue it's a very precious plant it has an it has an enormous magnificent history of people loving it and it gives so much back and I'm hoping that really appreciated and treasured as it should be wow i mean there's so many things kind of running through my mind right now i mean i haven't gotten anywhere near as far as you have in the world of cotton but i've certainly noticed a lot of aversion um, when i talk to commercial cotton farmers if i even mention the word organic it's people are just kind of like up in arms about it and um even mentioning, you know, cotton, colored cotton, people also either don't know that it exists or they just don't see any value of it. And for me, I do definitely see a very strong correlation to the people who grew and cultivated the crop and the way the crop itself has been treated. And so you have like this history of cotton that's linked to slavery and, you know, the discrimination that goes along with that and then you have literally mills and these other growers who just have such a strong aversion to it and it's brown truthfully for me i think that the the cotton industry you know is one of the strongest commercial industries in america as it pertains to agriculture and um it echoes racism the most well it 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 did it's just cotton is no longer a major industry in the u.s it has in in california when i was doing this work and they out and they outlawed it there were a million acres of cotton grown in this special area now there's maybe a hundred thousand acres the back in those days the number one um nation in the world for spinning spinning and all textiles was the United States. Then in a period of five years, 95% of the industry was shut down. The, they were mostly small businesses and they could not, what, what happened was is that the, in the United States, Europe and Japan, rules and regulations about dyes came in and you had to, the mills had to clean up their dye waste and it might have cost about a dollar a pound to dye cotton, but it cost $2 a pound to clean up the dye waste. What 
what happened was that in the parts of the world where they weren't cleaning the dye waste up, once tariffs were lifted, all the big, like the Gap and Walmart and these guys all switched. They dumped their manufacturers here in the U.S. that had invested all this money in dye waste cleanup. And this cost these multi-million dollar expensive cleanup systems they had had to attach to the price of the fabric. But here come all these products from parts of the world where they aren't cleaning up the dye waste and they're so much cheaper and they happen to have cheap labor for the cut and sew. And so in a very short period of time, all the whole textile industry in this country was decimated. And I was selling to the mills. I went from selling to one mill in Japan to 38 mills around the world because all of these mills that I was selling to were buying the cotton because it actually made sense to have cotton that was colored already so you didn't have to dye it and didn't have to clean up the dye waste. And if you're paying to clean up the dye waste, the higher cost of this cotton, because it does cost more per pound to grow because the yields are less because the plant, for a number of reasons, the plant is, produces less than commercial white cotton varieties that were bred to do well with chemical inputs. Um, and also it costs the plant a lot to make color. Color is never free. The, the production of the color itself is very expensive for the plant to do, and it lowers the yield. And in addition, the extra um, sort of trouble of sorting it out and keeping the seeds separate and keeping your fields you know, separate from each other and picking it and cleaning your equipment out from one color to the next, that adds expense. So the cotton costs more, but if everyone in the world had been cleaning up their dye waste, there would have been a financial advantage to using these cottons. And that's what I had succeeded in getting. And by the, by the mid-1990s, the cotton was enjoying massive growth. And we were producing thousands of acres of this cotton for 38 spinning mills around the world. And the mills themselves wanted the cotton. It was just the other cotton growers all out of sorts about it. But despite that, it was going, it was well received in the marketplace. And the final products cost the same or less than dyed equivalents. That's the kind of design work I was doing. I worked with a number of companies. I had a sweater that L.L. Bean was selling, and it cost less than a dyed cotton sweater. And it was, or, it was all of my cotton that went into it was organic. The white cotton wasn't. We still, I was still teaching people how to grow organic cotton. I was the first organic cotton grower. But what happened was all these mini mills went out of business, and the final retailers couldn't get the yarn and the mills in the countries where they dumped the dye waste, no way would buy this cotton. And everything fell apart. And there I was with, I had grown thousands of acres, thousands of bales of cotton for mills that when I planted the cotton, by the time the cotton was harvested, the mill had gone out of business. 
and we do not have a large textile industry in the U.S. anymore. We have barely have any textile industry and cotton production has gone way down. And so I don't, I feel that it, although it's very true what you're saying about the racism, the thing is modern agriculture doesn't include very much cotton these days. Cotton is a pretty low value crop and it's, just mostly sold export now because there are hardly any mills left. All these mills were small businesses that at the time everyone said, oh, everyone's moved their manufacturing to China. Well, no, they didn't move their manufacturing. They dumped their customers. Their, I mean, they, they, the, the mills that were producing went out of business and it was terrible to watch. I terrible all over the world this was going on the mills in, in italy the mills in germany the mills everywhere i went all my customers went out of business every single one every 30 all 38 mills that i sold to went out of business within two three years of each other all of them and i had no customers left and then this one mill in Japan that survived all these other things took over the business of the original mill that I was selling to in Japan. And that's the only mill I've been selling to since then. So I, my first sale to a mill was in 1988 to a mill in Japan. And I remained selling to one mill in Japan that took over their business. And that's the only mill customer in the world. And the Japanese mills were decimated, just like our mills, um, because of competition from, from mills in countries where they weren't cleaning up their dye waste. Mm. And so then that also kind of brings up the question of, you know, the countries that aren't cleaning up their dye waste, they could potentially be putting toxicity into smaller rural communities in, in other countries. Yes, the rivers in India and China, the people downriver were destroyed by these chemicals. And eventually now I'm hearing that in China, they're actually enforcing their rules and the bills have to clean up their waste. And maybe in India that will happen soon. And all the organic standards for textiles all require textile cleaning. Um, cleaning up of the dye waste and they have to really so if you see this GOTS label on the organic textile thing um, uh, then you know that they had to clean up the waste but in if it came from the U.S. if the mill if it was spun in the U.S. and made in the U.S. definitely the dye waste was cleaned up and the same with Italy and the same with Japan we don't have to have any special certificate certification it's part of being in a country that has these basic fundamental rights for the people downriver of a dye of a facility that produces textiles and that this kind of commerce was so embraced by the big brands that all they cared about was making the money and not at all concerned about the businesses that invested in in so much invested so much in cleaning up their act their reward for cleaning up their act was going out of business so it's sort of like it's sort of like unfairness was everywhere at that time it was a very awful thing to live through wow 
So one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about was, um, do you feel like being a part of the milling and the processing and creating of fabric helped you make your business more viable? Like, were you able to better support growing your cotton because you had more of a tie to the production aspect of it? Yes. First of all, nobody would have done this. It took... It, it took me doing, it took someone like me who has knowledge of the textile process to recognize how important this would be. Because, because if you're just a plant, a cotton breeder, all you're looking about, looking for are yields, period. And you don't know what the processing things cost. If you, it, it, it was the most important aspect of this evolution was that I came to it from that background of being a textile person in my heart, in my, that was not what I was educated in uh, formally, but it was my love and passion. I didn't grow up in a family where I could follow my passion and go be an artist sort of a person. I had friends who grew up in families that had that kind of financial stability, but that's not what I grew up with. And I knew I needed to have a profession and support myself. And that was yet another reason why I decided to go for studying entomology. And I felt very called to, you know, be part of the group of people that would reduce pesticide use in the world. And that was you know, inspiring to me, but it was also, I didn't have any illusion that I could be an artist or a textile person or something that wouldn't, that I wouldn't be able to support myself doing. My friend that, that did the beautiful artwork of the Fox Fiber logo and came up with the name, she's remained a marvelous artist. She's a tremendous artist. I have so many friends who are artists, but they came from families that were um, sort of a different economic, uh, they had a different economic stability that I didn't grow up with. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally understand. It's definitely difficult, you know, being an artist. What would you say is, um, some of the things that have kept you inspired along in this journey? I think the world needs this cotton. That's what's kept me inspired is I believe it's needed. And each time I step back and think, well, maybe someone else will do this. They like go about it the completely wrong way. Like in like, let's see, the Chinese put this $40 million project together where they engineered the color into white cotton. Um, they took the brown gene and they isolated each gene, the, this sort of brick red and green, and they engineered it to be expressed in, in commercially viable white cotton breeding lines. Mm. Well, guess what? When you wash it, the color washes out. Duh. Oh. Like, where? this is the problem. People are very arrogant about it, and they think that they can just do this, like, faster and... Uh, I, I don't, there's, how do I say this? I've not so far, um, it, 
the seriousness and respect for the history of the plant hasn't, uh, I haven't seen it um, manifest. Um, there is naturally colored cotton growing in Peru, the, one of the, the Gossipium barbadensi uh, area of domestication. There is a project there where they have kept the naturally colored cottons growing there in the, in the more tropical regions, and it's a viable industry there. And they have their own spinning mill. And there's been a whole group of people who've devoted themselves into keeping that cotton going, but no one's been breeding it to be easy, more easily spun it's it's they're maintaining it as a cultural part of their cultural heritage which is wonderful but it doesn't in my opinion solve the worldwide problem of how do we reduce energy use water use and and product and use of toxic materials so i really feel that this cotton has this very strong part to play in cleaning up our textile act and that's why I keep going at it. And it, and so far, it still seems like I'm my little mix, unusual mix of skill sets, is still required. Mm. Uh, it's been really, really amazing talking to you today, and full of so many insights. Um, is there anywhere that people who want to support you or your work can go on the internet to follow you? Yeah, they can. On Instagram, I'm under Versis, which is at Versis, which is V-R-E-S-E-I-S. Um, on Facebook, it's Fox Fiber Color Organic. Um, I have a a website where I sell things. This is how I support my work <laughs> is selling <laughs> things. It's all on my website, uh, which is versis.com. And I have a place you can make donations uh, if you want. If somebody doesn't see anything they want to buy and they just want to help me, there's a little donation place. Um, I haven't for filed a 501c3 thing because I'm so, everything is so, it takes so much time and it would mean keeping separate books and it's like oh my gosh I am uh, hardly living high on the hog every all the years that I've been running this even when my company was making millions in sales everything went back I put everything into the cotton again you know it's always been just to keep this thing going and um and I have I've kept it going despite all these obstacles. I've kept it going. I've kept, um, I've worked hard to keep my part of this relationship. And I'm hoping that the cotton someday, you know, makes it back out into the giant world of textiles to play the role that it should be playing. And in the meantime, I'm honored to keep working with it and thinking about it and and appreciating it for what it is. Well, I certainly believe that it will. So, <laughs> thank you. So, before you go, I have one last question, and that's do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Huh. 
Um, I think it's really special, the love that all of us have for textiles. I feel that this is sort of a gift that we have. Not everybody has it. And I think we should treasure the directions that we're drawn towards because each fiber has its own magic and its own amazing history. And some people are drawn to the fibers, some people are drawn to the dye plants. It's really wonderful to, to sort of step out of our of sort of the normal, our normal post-industrial life and sort of connect, connect with things tactily and emotionally and creatively and whether it's your it's your occupation all of these it doesn't matter if you're trying to support yourself with it or not it's still your chance to connect with other living things of all sorts and connect with other people who are drawn to those things and i just see it as a gift and i and i hope everyone appreciates that and enjoys it. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining Thank the podcast. Thank you, Sean. I look forward to talking to you again. That's a wrap. To see some of the beautiful images of Sally's farm, as well as to support her business, you can follow links in our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 52. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Kate Charette from Ashford. Ashford is a well-known and beloved manufacturer of weaving and spinning equipment in New Zealand. They had a fun conversation about the history of the company, as well as the resurgence of interest in weaving. So tune in next Monday for that fascinating conversation. And until next time, happy weaving!